Hello, welcome to the Big Shiny Podcast. I'm Chris Betts. I'm here with my co-host Jordan Robson Kramer. Howdy. And this week for uh, Big Shiny Podcast, instead of uh, reviewing one of the Big Shiny tunes, we have a Speaker's Corner, which is our interview uh, collection. Last time, Speaker's Corner, we had Mark Teo, who wrote Shine, the book about the first Big Shiny tunes. This week, we have uh, Jeremy Taggart, who was the drummer for Our Lady Peace for 21 years. He joined when he was 17. Uh, he spent more time in Our Lady Peace than he spent out of it, which is a remarkable feat. Um, we had a great conversation told us a bunch of uh, uh, great Canadian showbiz stories, uh, talked about how he joined the band, uh, which was like a, a weird audition process with like 50 other drummers, which I loved hearing about. Yeah, it was definitely um, way better than we deserved for the amount of making fun of Canadian music that we do on this podcast. So it was a treat to have somebody who was so uh, down to earth and funny in his own right, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, and it's nice. Uh, we found, I think, in both of our interviews now, we found a nice sort of self-effacing streak in people involved in Canadian music. So we're hoping to continue that throughout. Uh, but he's great. He doesn't take himself too seriously. He's um, really forthcoming with uh, uh, details and stories, uh, some of which were about things that honestly I didn't really expect him to talk about. Yeah, like uh, like Fred Durst standing people up. Yeah, he tells us like, he tells a funny Fred Durst story. Um, uh, he obviously talks about uh, some of the troubles that they had in Our Lady Peace, um, uh, the the dynamics of sort of uh, being in a band that rises really quickly and then dealing with the fall after that. Um, I thought it was a it was a great interview. I was I found it super interesting. Um, we ran really long. We ended up doing two hours. We went we meant to record an interview for an hour. We ended up doing two hours. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you um, the edited version right now. If you want the uncut two-hour version of the interview, you can get that on our Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash bigshinypodcast. There's going to be a link in the show description. Uh, so if you want to join there, support the show, you'll get access to um, episodes early, and you'll also get uncut uh, interviews. Yep. Uh, so without anything else uh, to say, I say we just cut to us talking to Jeremy Taggart. You good with that? Let's do it. All right. Enjoy the interview. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm psyched. This is cool. It's uh, There's not enough uh, celebrating... The '90s going on in this regard, the music scene. It was, it was, uh, it was fun. I grew up in it. I was literally, you know, a baby when it started, and I grew up in it more than anybody, I think, in the music scene. So I'm uh, psyched. I spent a few hours pouring through um, almost like web archived versions of print media, early Our Lady Peace things, and and people just loved uh, adding like. Jeremy joined the band when he was 17. It's just this like, oh, like I think even on that big shiny tunes, um, the, the first one, uh, that porno for pyro songs, Tahitian moon. I think Perry Farrell was like 38. Yeah, I'm <laughs> so. <pretty> sure. <laughs> Definitely. We, we've been starting every interview, uh, this way, uh, with any musician that comes on. We didn't do it with Mark, uh, because he didn't play, but just, just so we're sure, are you now, or have you ever been a member of crash karma? Oh, nice. That's that, no, that's Mike, okay. Mike Turner and Edwin and those guys. But, uh, you know, that that was a solid move, I guess, when you're in that position, right? Like, what's going on? Let's get together and, you know, put a band together and you can make some good money on the weekends, man. 
Yeah. <laughs> as close to a Canadian super band as we've had, I guess. There's a okay. bunch. Like there's uh there's the one with Chris Murphy and Stephen Page. They got one. What? What is that? Yeah, I, I'm not sure what their name is. The Highway Lost Highwaymen or something like that. But there's a there's a few out there, man. It's I, the thing about that, it's like um when you see cover bands or like cover out al- classic albums filling Massey Hall and and there's a guy sitting in Florida getting $60,000 for the guarantee. You start thinking, mm. you know what? Maybe a couple covers here and there doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> yeah. And especially if it's like, oh, I actually know that guy playing the instrument instead of some, you know, dude who was in Humber two days ago. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Is there still, um, is there like a sense of community among bands from that time? Like, do you know any of the guys in those bands or? Um, is I, it- yeah. I mean, I know, I, 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 I acquaintance more than anything I, mean, I I know Mike obviously being in the band with him for so long um, we're close now although we weren't close obviously you know when everything happened and and uh, there you know there was tension and that that's uh, the way it is with a band I think with everybody yeah. that's from that era if like you had a beef yeah. it's over with and if you you know were kind of given somebody shit when 20 years later and everybody's kind of moved on from that stuff it's pretty small to kind of think that that shit's still real you know what i mean so usually if i talk to anyone it's like hey man what's up like good times always enjoyed it and uh you know more power to you because it's difficult to fucking do this and it's difficult especially in canada because you don't get to make the same kind of money you do in America. But in your case, I think it's it's interesting because you started at such a young age um, that you kind of grew up within this much music system of um, people finding out uh, about a lot of Canadian bands uh, and bands that were under the radar in a lot of cases um, through TV and through print media. It, like Based on what I read, it just kind of seemed that you were thrown into um, this world you know, like there weren't a lot of um, uh, plane shows to like 10 people or is that uh, is that fair to say? Well, there was in in uh, in America when we started there, yeah. definitely. But I mean, from the period of uh, in Canada, we, you know, Naveed came out in April 94 and, you know, we were playing clubs, not to really anybody. And it wasn't until um, Starseed hitting in America, in a sense, when things really went off the next it was basically a whole year in Canada that we were kind of just slugging it out and I would say until uh Starseed in America started to get played on alternative radio like K-Rock and all these stations 99X in Atlanta and all of a sudden the Canadian press jumped on us so it was a year in when things really started firing and our videos oh. just went straight to heavy rotation and basically stayed in heavy rotation at much for probably 10 years. Wow. I had, because like we've, we've talked before, um, like I'm a, I'm a Canadian comedian, but I moved out to the UK because touring in Canada is impossible. Um, and so like we've, we've talked before about the, the, the Canadian, like uh, they don't want to accept you as good until someone else has. Yeah. Uh, and I always, I, Our Lady Peace was one of the examples of bands that I thought like escaped that. But it turns out that just right at the beginning, it was success in America that turned you into Canada. That's It took an American program director 
to vilify, I guess, validate us. Validate, yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> a vilify. God damn you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but honestly, it was like kind of like overnight when that happened. Once Starseed started getting play, uh, things really changed for us in Canada. And because we did have a year of playing clubs and getting better as a live band, um, that kind of helped. It gave us, when we were ready, which was basically the summer of 95 when things really started blowing up, um, that at that point we were playing to, you know, from 500 people, next time you come back a thousand. And then after that, the small arena and, wow. you know, it, it was really kind of quick after that. But, uh, you know, when we went down to America, it was back to the old days in a sense where you're just trying to build up a following. And but, but we always, you know, back then when you had a label and you had because uh, we didn't have MTV first off, we had a little bit of stuff here and there, like 120 minutes or whatever would play it. But we didn't have a buzz clip or something on, on MTV ever, yeah. actually. So um, in America, it was more about getting the right tours and radio that really did the trick for us in America. Yeah, I remember uh, reading a thing that um, you were purposely trying to push for college radio support early on because it was like that was where you thought your fan base was going to be. We even did residency tours of college areas like the Northeast America. We would play like Providence on Tuesday, uh, New York on Wednesday, uh, back up to Boston on Thursday. We just kept doing a route of the Northeast, all those little college towns. And honestly... Huh we'd be playing say the middle east in boston to eight eighteen people but then by the end of coming around a few times we were at like the avalon packing it out or you know places all of a sudden there's a thousand people so um nice. we we had a good we were on uh relativity records at the time which was like a mostly a, a hip-hop label um like uh bone thugs that was like <laughs> where they came from so we had actually a cool team out there but they were kind of not used to working uh, alternative radio and that's why on um donnie einer from columbia records was pissed after the fact that they didn't get a chance to put uh navid out because it wasn't until uh clumsy that we went to Col uh, columbia under the because it was all under the sony umbrella but once we went to Columbia, you saw the massive difference in press. And when you go to a city, uh, the, the presence of radio and, and yeah, we, we saw that, you know, I would I assume if hindsight, if 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 Navid came out on Columbia, it would have been more like a, a green day or something like that. Like it would have been more in your face impact. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it seemed that there was a vision early on to have um, a certain amount of creative control from, from the get-go and not perhaps uh, fall into some of the patterns. I think that maybe other bands that you guys knew uh, were stuck with in terms of contracts. But um, I, I guess like something I was curious about was um, like being that young and um, just all of a sudden being thrown into the machinery of um, the music industry like, were you, did you have like a space in your own life where you, you know, like as a young man, were going to local shows and checking out bands and still um, kind of seeing like what music was like as a spectator and as like a music listener? Or was it, um, were you just kind of like, I can't go to the show, have band practice? <laughs> it was different because like, uh, it, 
I, uh, I, I was younger with older friends that were musicians. So in high school, I didn't really hang out with kids in grade nine. I was hanging out with guys at St. Basil's that played in bands in grade 12, yeah. kind of at a different yeah. school. So I was hanging out with musicians. So um, I was like going and trying to sit in with cover bands and, you know, playing Mustang Sally at Sharks and, or, you know, in... <laughs> on steels on a Fridays and Saturdays with my buddy Mike Syracuse who played in, in, you know, legit cover bands in the city that that's, I was kind of channeling towards just being a live musician and understanding that that probably didn't mean I was going to be famous. It probably meant I was going to be playing cruise ships and, you know, holiday inns and shit like that just to try and uh, maybe, and obviously whatever I can get going in the studio. So I was, um, I guess in the sense, just a blue collar musician that was just, you know, my craft was the drums and that's, that's how I got everything. So, um, I think when, when things started rolling with the band, I kept that mentality of just like, if I, uh, just concentrate on this instrument as opposed to, uh, trying to be somebody or talk about something that I don't really know about, it's not going to do me any good. So I'm just going to get as good as I can at this and, and, and ride this shit out. <laughs> That's shockingly mature for a 17 year old. Uh, <laughs> worryingly. So actually, um, well, plus I didn't drink or do any drugs. I like, I, I never, I never smoked weed or anything until I was like 28 years old. So I was like, I think it's because I grew up really fucking broke and when I was living, when I was 16 years old, we lived in a one, a one bedroom apartment and me and my two brothers and my parents, they slept in the, in the living room every night on a, a like a, a foam mattress. Like uh, that, I was like, well, if this is 16, 17, like things are, you know, we did live in a house 10 years before that. And so it just kind of dwindled to that. So I was just like, I got to get out of here and figure something out because I don't yeah. want to see how this story ends if I don't do yeah. anything. So um, the first like five or six years was just me trying to, you know, uh, collect an assemblance of family and, and home and solidarity in my own life. So where, did, did, um, you, did you did you have a drum set at home or were you? Yeah. Oh, for sure. My dad was a drummer. My dad was a, a professional drummer in the 60s in the Yorkville scene and quit drumming when when uh, in the late 70s because it wasn't paying the bills. So he. And, and, you know, the shortest story, even in shorter in sense, I was baseball was all my parents cared about with me was playing baseball. And I I had played a high level baseball until 16, 17. And then I <clears throat> gave up baseball for drums and they were like, what the fuck are you doing? This is it. Like, yeah. you're just about to, you know, get a, a scholarship or whatever else. And I just went the other way to music. So that was my active rebellion but um i was you know i was really kind of looking in the right places you know i was looking in uh at wanted ads and and i was looking at every alternative there was for a live musician so i was doing the work i just wanted to kind of maintain it and, I, and so i felt uh that when olp started getting going and everything was working and we were doing well like i believed in it because it made it made sense to me, you know, the idea of finding guys and getting into a room and writing songs and those songs becoming popular and getting into a, a van and, and growing up as a band, like all that stuff happened like a fairy tale. So money started coming in and I, 
I, I bought my parents a house. Like it just all started to work yes. in the right direction. And um, so, I mean, with, with all the, the, the crazy stuff going on, I think by having that uh, grounding of my own personal family, it really kind of helped uh, keep, me, yeah. keep my head straight through all the stuff. When you, I guess, like first uh, auditioned for the band, um, I, I guess at least that's the way it, it gets framed um, as this audition. Like, I think it's a classic uh, audition moment for sure. Like your audition was just kind of like, yeah, you've showed up and um, you started uh, jamming with the, the guys and it, something just clicked. Right. And, and I think that's often the case. And I think like a lot of people probably don't uh, remember that I think in the eighties and nineties, and there definitely was this kind of like drummer culture where it was all about chops and, and probably, I, I don't know what those audition processes looked like in the drummers before you, but I assume there were a lot of people who like needed to bring their own kit or maybe you brought your own kit. Everybody too, but, brought like... their own kit. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that's kind of part yeah. of the, part of the funny part is, is yeah, there was literally like 50 other guys and um, in the ad, it was just there was interest from a label. So if you saw a la an ad that had interest from a label um, and th they had just uh, done a demo uh, with Arnold Lanny and they, they, they parted ways with their original drummer, Jim, and uh, they were just looking for a drummer to start the, the, the idea and the first record, literally, because Sony was interested and... Uh, so that audition, like you could tell that uh, something was po probably going to happen. And anytime you saw an audition where there was like a possibility of a label, you would have the swarm. So I don't know of how many, but definitely over 50 guys. And my mom, there... my mom drove me to this. Like <laughs> I didn't, I was only fresh. Like I, I, I think I was still 17 years old and she drove me there. Cause I didn't have a license and no money to even think about driving. But, uh, I literally had like my, you know, K way baseball playoff jacket. Nice. And, and uh, it took me like an hour to set up my drums. Cause I, I <laughs> like that wasn't really my thing. Right. <clears throat> and I think that probably helped too. Cause they were actually laughing with how long it was taking me to do, <laughs> to do it. So maybe that, I don't know. They, I guess they just saw how green I was as a person and then once uh i started to play i i felt a, a connection musically with them and the, literally there was like uh older dudes there was like chili peppers looking guy I, like one guy had like a speedo on like they were you know like wow. trying to showcase their look like you could tell that like they were probably sick and tired of of that shit at, by the time i got there and just the fact that I, they knew that all I cared about was playing drums and I just wanted to play. And my dream was actually to, you know, be on tour and play music, uh, you know, 24-7. And I think that they, seeing that eagerness, because that's all they really wanted to do. Um, once we started playing, there was a, a thing and a vibe. And was that and, just uh, a straight up jam or yeah, were, were there just like a totally songs? not okay. songs that we no, Cause I don't think they were good enough to play covers at that point, to be honest. <laughs> like it was just like, let's, you know, they were all like 25, I guess that age. And I was like 17, 18, but no, no, it's not like they were crushing it on their instruments. Everybody was kind of at the same level. So um, that was part of it, like playing together and like just kind of communicating and and uh, th there was something definitely there. And uh, uh, so I could feel that that it was great. And uh, but, I, you know, I, I left there um, 
thinking maybe and we'll see. But it wasn't until, I guess, a few days later that uh, Rain called me and said that I got the gig. And then literally the next week, like we started rehearsing in this like warehouse space and writing and playing together every single day. And we wrote Naveed in the next like three months and started recording that late summer and fall. And uh, it was just a, a really like we got signed as that little when I got picked as the drummer, the label, everything stuff like I signed the contract for the for for our first album um, as like I remember you know, being impressed that I was going to get 150 bucks a week. I was like, wow, really? I'm going to get that much money? Because, you know, we worked in a budget of how much the whatever record was going to cost. So yeah, per, per, per diem sounds so fancy because they, yeah, Latin, you know? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I, you know, the, and the first deal that we signed, it wasn't like a big fancy record deal that you'd heard about. It was like big and fancy in terms of it was seven albums um, but there wow. was no huge advance. There was just uh, the money to make a record. And if it's a good record, the money to make a legitimate good record. And back then it cost like freaking anywhere from two, three hundred thousand dollars to half a million to a million bucks to, to be in the studio for six months because uh, yeah. there's just so many different expenses that can come up, especially if you go somewhere to record like New York or L.A. or even England. Yeah. So, um it was just literally on, you know, the next week and uh, I was all about it and it was uh, hit the ground running, man. Like I, I felt that we, we were we made a really good first record and, and uh, that that was it was a great kind of way to, to a crash course entry into rock and roll for me because um, I'm sure that's the only way to do it is uh, is to get into a room and just, you know, bash it out for months and craft it and uh it worked i mean we felt like uh we we I, i'm pretty sure the is it 10 or 11 songs like that's pretty much all we had we didn't write like 15 20 songs yeah <laughs> there's no real fat on the first few records because we just kept chiseling away on every single song for months and uh yeah. you, know, you don't really see that anymore you don't really have the opportunity to, to work on stuff in that regard, with exception to bands that are huge, like the Arkells, I'm sure that that's how they do it. They they have the time to actually chip away at things. But um, even towards the end of of the years with OLP, we were we'd go down into LA and like record on the on the in a weekend as opposed to like spending that, yeah. that time. So um, there's something to be said for. A band when they when they decide let's do this and and they actually are serious and they work seven days a week yeah um so i i just uh i just want to go back to the audition just real quick because i can't wrap my mind around the the picture of 50 drummers with 50 kits in i picture you not even in a building i picture you all in a parking lot just waiting your turn it was at arn yard arnold lanny's first studio where we recorded naveed so it was yeah guys coming in and out down a hallway with drum kits <laughs> and were you all there all day like like was it take a number deli style no i think it was like you uh, uh you call and you get a, a kind of a, a reference time to come because that what i know that I, when i got there there had been a lot of people before me mm. and i think i was one of the last 
Okay. And were you, did you have to wait like in a room with other drummers? Cause I've been on auditions for like commercials and things and everyone has to sit outside the audition room and you can hear when someone's killing in the other room. For me, I just remember because I think I was taking so long <laughs> that like there was, I wasn't waiting for anybody. It was just people waiting for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. That's I mean, that's a crazy, that's a crazy way to do it. And then to go from, did you guys start opening for big bands while you were doing the small club shows or was it after you got the American exposure and then that led you into opening for like I'm Mother Earth and 5440, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's kind of like an interesting story, like right after we got signed and just completely randomly in, uh, in 94, um, I remember because I went to Lollapalooza the next day and with like Primus and Alice in Chains and, and Tool yeah. and Rage like that was a, a great a Jesus great, that's a great lineup great lineup yeah um yeah. but I, I remember we just got a random call that Blind Melon was playing Lee's Palace and they needed an opening act and so just totally in thrown in in, in it we we did a, a one-off with Blind Melon at Lee's which was awesome but we did uh early tours with with tea party in quebec like when they were were doing well there we had a friend yeah. dj williams who was a, a promoter that knew like donald k donald and uh had a thing going with with uh i guess you know alternative bands through college cities and towns in, in quebec and uh so we did a tour of quebec with tea party when like they were just starting out and boy that was classic <laughs> Please describe a young Jeff Martin to us. We need to know. We need to know. <laughs> so you're, you're saying that um, you're saying that Tea Party was especially big in Quebec in those massive. Days? Yeah, man. I they, can see that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can really they were, see that. <laughs> DJ was smart to do it. Like, cause that, uh, back then it was the same thing. You do like residency tours of like the same kind of places, and you kind of grow, build your your following if you have a, a good show. And everybody knows that Tea Party put on a fucking classic show man like they really got the crowd going and they made it feel like you're in a way bigger place than a hundred seat bar so i mean you could tell because jeff had 30 guitars on stage that like <laughs> that they weren't getting around so yeah it was uh it was it was fun opening for them because they just packed packed everywhere but i remember we played back street in in montreal our, our I think it was like our first show, first or second show ever opening for Tea Party. And we were so bad that that uh, in the middle of Naveed, I don't know if somebody else started another song or what, but we literally <laughs> train wrecked and they were all watching at the side of the stage. Trial by fire. It was like, I just remember like we're trying to find out what's going on and I just hear Maida like, okay, fucking stop, fucking stop. <laughs> and we stopped and we just got off the stage. We didn't even try to start again. It was like the worst first show in history. Like those, the Tea Party guys, the Jeffs and... And Stuart were just like, what the fuck? What was that? Yeah, it's always those shows that stick in your memory, isn't it? <laughs> we played 10, 15 minutes maybe, and uh, we stopped playing because we sucked so bad that we couldn't finish a song together. Oh so, so like, we literally went off stage. I remember Terry Sawchuk, a friend of ours, who was, like, just kind of hanging out for the, 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 the tour, 
He's like, whoa, so you guys sucked the bag tonight, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) And it really kind of helped break the levity, you know, just it really gave us a chance to kind of like, wow. And we played Quebec City the next night and was actually back on track. But it's, you know, I do recommend if you're going to have a bad show, go right to the bottom of the barrel because, you know, there's nowhere to go but up from there. (laughs) <laughs> did you guys stay and watch the tea party afterwards or did you just run? No, was no, we just got, we just left because we okay, sh- okay. hit our faces in shame to the next yeah. town. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't kick us off the tour because we couldn't play a set. <laughs> you know what though? Maybe because I remember I was opening for a comedian and I, when I was really new and I did that, I just picked all the wrong jokes. I told him terribly. I ate it. And he was mad at me until I got to the back of the room and he could see how ashamed of myself I was. Like he knew that I knew how bad I'd fucked up. Yeah. And and I remember I talked to him the next night and he was like, I was mad at you until that. And I was like, he gets it. There's no, this is all right. He'll learn from this. Well, that's it. At that point, I mean, when you're in control of your own destiny and it's going poorly, only mm. you know how to take it really good off the like way off the rails like just like wow that yeah this is happening <laughs> yeah. yeah and in uh in a band i played in when we'd have bad shows like that we'd call them uh public rehearsals yeah just, <laughs> yeah. just having to bomb uh just to know how to do it a little bit better next time but um yeah like in, in these days uh when you guys were going through um the states was that kind of your first time seeing america too was that for sure. I mean, the first time I was ever on a plane was doing press in Montreal. Like that, that was my, again, when you're, when you, when you're broke, you, you know, leaving a province is a big deal. So, yeah. so getting on a, a plane, I was like, wow, this is incredible. So getting to tour, uh, across America, um, visiting places that I had only dreamed of. I mean, going to every state, it was just incredible. It was, uh, it was uh, li- literally 18, 19, 20, growing up, like literally Jack Kerouac styles, like where you're yeah. uh, a student of the road. So instead yeah. of university for me or even high school, it was just like, you know, meeting different people every day, uh, seeing seeing the world through the eyes of a of a, a band on tour it was really a, a great experience was there much of a divide you being 17 18 and then being mid-20s um a little bit but i mean i think um i think i fit in all right in that regard i um i, I probably didn't start getting childish and still I, until i started drinking and messing around on with weed in the 28 age that's probably okay. when i <laughs> became more of a handful but in the early days I, I think i was so uh um conscious in what was going on personally in my family and uh, uh you know just trying to play drums that just kind of kept me straight what what was your kind of tour mode in the early days? Like, would you guys uh, just pr- pretty much try and book it back to the motel hotel as soon as possible, get your sleep? Or did you guys, um, I mean, you were probably young enough to burn that midnight oil a bit, but... Um, but if you uh, weren't we're, drinking... I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, we were... It, oh, when we were a, a band playing, to me, it just, it was always kind of uh, more business as opposed to, you know... The, the, just kind of 
going through, I like to call pulling the fun rope every day. Yeah. You got a rope. <laughs> one says fun, one says work. I like to pull the fun rope every day. And that was a leave on helm from the band. <laughs> that's mm. his saying, pulling the fun rope. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's my way of going through life. And I think that at the end of the day, it might be the difference between me and Rain. And, you know, with him, things were more uh, business and uh, which I, I just still to this day don't relate to that kind of a perspective. So um, that's probably why. What was your first impression of the other band members when you showed up? to your audition, did you nail it first time? Or were you like, well, I was way fucking off when I saw these guys? No, I I think these guys, they were like, who the fuck is this guy? Like at the beginning, they were probably like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, this is a waste of our time. And then by the end of it, they're like, who the fuck was that guy? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was really kind of like everything they thought they didn't want, but then turning out to be everything that they needed and wanted. So. Um, it makes sense that, that, uh, you know, things started to happen so quickly after that, because, um, I'm sure I was the perfect person to, to for the, to what was, you know, for what was needed to be done. Um, not just my mindset of, of, of music, but also my mindset of how I was a team player and how I wanted to help. And what about how, how you saw them? Were your, your perceptions dead on of like, did you see Rain as a business guy and... Um, well, it's interesting because I were again two different places. I mean, even though it's funny, my mom went to school with his dad, <laughs> and his, <laughs> and actually, I, I think went on a date with his dad or her, his dad's brother. Like that, they knew each other. My parents, but Weird. we never spoke of that. And when I met Rain's dad, I told him about it, and he didn't want to talk about it at all. He didn't even talk to me. So I mean, he was a Whoa. big developer in Toronto and they when I first went to Rain's house it was at on the bridal path <laughs> so I'm like okay. first of all I've never even seen a house like this up close let alone step inside yeah. so I was like hey my mom knows you and like across the room and like nothing <laughs> not nothing back and I'm like okay that's a different perspective wow did your mom break his heart is that what happened did she just tear him i don't think he remembered or any it was just like a kind of stone vibes you know um okay it's just uh it's basically the classic story of like the kid that comes from the other side of the tracks you know like that (laughs) vibe like karate kid styles (laughs) there's a lot of a lot of people um we're wondering about how you and Rain are doing. Um, and you even in, like, because we, we put out a tweet that you saw about, uh, are there any questions that people would like us to ask? And one person was, like, accusing you of taking pot shots at him. And um, we don't want to, uh, I'm sure you've answered a bunch of times if you guys are cool, but uh, so we don't want to ask that. But how, how about this? What are the odds that Rain teams up with the the, the buds? What are the odds I, of that? I'll, are you that I don't, close? I don't talk to him. I haven't talked to him since I left, so. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I still talk to Steve. Um, mm. I talked to. I was just texting with him a couple of days ago. I, t- I text with Coots. I, you know, I still talk to our crew. <laughs> you know, like I'm very close with everybody involved with OLP from day one, with exception of uh, Rain. I mean, I, I'll still, I, I still talk to Eric, our manager, uh, once in a while. Rob, you know. If I see him, I'll give him a hug. Like, I, I got no issues with anything 
except for me and Rain, and that's that. And it's, it's I mean, I don't really have to say anything because everybody kind of knows. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? That's it. Well, I guess I guess I was a little surprised because like when when I can't remember the name, who was the first guitarist that left? Mike. Rain said something like really harsh about him in the media when he left. And it was it was like pretty it was pretty cold. But then when when you left, um, Rain was like, well, we wish him well. And uh, uh, good luck. And that was the official statement. And I was like, has Rain just become more professional or do these guys still get along? So I guess it's just the professionalism thing. That's I all. think it's just life, you know, water yeah. under the bridge. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm close with Mike now, but I mean, at the time when, when we parted ways, I, I was in a bad place with him mm-hmm. in a sense. Like I, I wasn't close with him and, and, uh, I, I mean, uncom- it was uncomfortable in that regard. And um, I think now looking back, like I feel like I was kind of like an, uh, an asshole for, for a, a, a time just because I was um, just being too adamant about the, the bottom line of music being this one thing that has to happen and why the music, if the music can't happen this way, then it has to be different. And um, taking the humanitarian part out of it um and the realization of of what a band actually means and solidarity and helping each other because um and and anything i've done before after or you know taggart and torns whatever that the mindset of what i think has to you know things have to be done um works and and it and it's correct but for a time in in an olp I just kind of was swayed toward just like, well, you know, you're a musician. Let's just stick with that. And if it can't be done properly, then then something has to change. And uh, um, I, I kind of I definitely regret kind of being a little bit. Um, I thought I was smarter than that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. When you think yeah. back, and it's like, I thought you. You know, but I don't know. I, 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 I'm going through a lot of stuff thinking back through those times. And uh, um, when you're 17 and you kind of go with the flow, sometimes the flow isn't right. Like so, some of those dynamics, I think, between like, you know, like drummer and singer or just just um, how how I guess like under the surface, those things kind of can remain in a band. Um, it takes a while to untangle, I think. But it's yeah. Most times uh, bands are really good friends that start making music together <clears throat> after they're friends. And that's the big difference with OLP. Nobody was friends before the band, really. It was just... Nobody? Like, no. There's no, like, going to the movies because we have this past. It was all just, you know, musician meets other musician, starts working in this music, music place. Mm-hmm. So um, you can't really expect friendship to happen after that so um that's kind of why i'm like well you know that's just the way life is but uh you know when i see the arkells for example you can see there you know uh there's there's a bond initially Hmm. and then the music happens you know there's something to be said for people that are actually really close before they start you know making music together because yeah uh, um there's there's a little more empathy. There's a little more respect. All of those things. You guys went to a lot of M- M- MMVAs, right? Yeah. As a kid, the whole thing made sense to me. It's a big party, and like I don't know if you 
I don't know if you ever read Mark Teo's book, Shine, about the big shiny tunes. It's really good. It's like 100 pages. He's the guy we interviewed last week. But he talks about how um, the guys at Much Music wanted to make an award show that was a party first. Um, and uh, how that was sort of revolutionary in award shows and things like that. And that always made sense to me watching it. But then since then, I sort of look at it and I go, what the hell were the bands doing the rest of the time? Yeah. <laughs> because you're not, we don't see you except for the three minutes that you're either playing a song or accepting an award or presenting an award. And the rest of the time you're just there because we saw you walk down the carpet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of interesting that, you know, that they framed it that way because that's really what it was like. And it wasn't until later when it started getting you know, I guess really big that bands and, and artists wanted their space again with green rooms and like leave me alone stuff. But initially, yeah, like early on, you just set up in a room with all the people. And after the, you, your stuff's gone, you're just in there with all the people. So you're, you know, generally just hanging out with other bands and other people in the industry that you like and getting banged up. That's basically what it became. And, uh, to be honest, like, I don't really remember too many of them from like, you know, 99 to, uh, or, sorry, 2000 to 2001 to 2006. They're all hazy. I do remember one really fun, like, remember Much used to let the cameras keep rolling sometimes after and like bands would just uh -oh. jam and stuff. <laughs> like that was the coolest when bands were just like fucking around, like I'll sit, sit in on this. Like, I mean, and it's all on TV. Like, that's great. They, they did that. They should do that more, but. I mean, actually, yeah. now it's just nothing. There probably is it even a. There isn't an MMVAs anymore, right? No, there can't be. They yeah, don't. There's they don't, nothing. They don't do much music and really yeah. anymore. I think it's just. I think that's why it's just much now. Yeah. Um, did you guys do much MTV or was it all much music? Yeah, I mean, we didn't do any MTV awards, but like I mm -hmm. said, we 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 our presence was more American radio than American video. But we would do like the you know drop-ins and mtv lives and stuff where they play your video for 30 seconds and then you you know get kicked out and then they play limp biscuit for an hour <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> i remember one time waiting where limp biscuit and uh, fred durst was a fan of our band and wanted to like do a collaboration how did that feel when you found out that Fred Durst liked your music? <laughs> well, I remember playing festivals in Florida where they were like a young band on it. And it's like, this takes us to the point where, you know, that's after Woodstock where they're the biggest band on the planet. And Rain's like sitting in a hotel with an acoustic waiting to meet Fred. And Fred's like, he looks up and he's on the TV in the lobby and Fred's fucking at MTV Live, like with Carson Daly, while he's thought he was going to write a song with him. Literally made him wait there for hours, and then he sees him on TV with like Jeez. Carson Daly. Like, you know, I'm sure you know Rain probably really appreciated that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> took it in stride. How so? You guys played uh, the day after the riots at Woodstock yeah what was what was the atmosphere there because like I always felt like the Friday you know, I think I think we played, like party. The, we played the day nonsense. before the before the fire oh on, okay. the, on, on the website it had you as the day after Limp Bizkit they had you as the Sunday I think we played Saturday afternoon because I remember like I mean it was a Wikipedia entry so who knows because I don't remember seeing them but I remember seeing Metallica and Rage that they played yeah. Saturday night so okay. 
I don't think Limp Biscuit played until Sunday night or the, the, the was it was it the peppers when that one thing was going crazy like was it that the chili peppers was the Sunday night I guess when the fires and stuff were going on yeah yeah so anyway we played earlier before all that stuff happened like at like three o'clock okay it was incredible but I mean it was it was uh it's the first time I felt like there's so many people here I don't think that there's they're listening <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you, you know when you see, when you see so many a sea of heads, you're like, how can that so far out there even know what the hell's going on over here? You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. it's just such a anything after five thousand people, it doesn't really matter. When it gets up into hundreds, it just it just feels really surreal. But I mean, and that show, the fucking balls that we had, like we we uh happiness hadn't even come out but the set we played is like all songs from that record like classic dirtball move by a band like maybe play two or three songs people have heard of the rest of it's all these deep cuts from an album that's not even out yet like damn that's up there with us playing a different song at the junos like we were supposed to play star star seed and then we played a brand new song that no one ever heard. And hey, we never got invited back to the Junos. <laughs> <laughs> That's whatever, whatever I think of festival sets, I think of uh, Andre 3000 talked about advice that Prince gave him. And Prince was like, the audience at a festival is not there to see you. They're there to see a festival. They're not your fans. So you give them every hit you've ever made and you tuck your ego away and now whenever i see a band at a festival play anything other than their hits i'm like you think you're better than prince can you imagine <laughs> happiness hadn't come out and we're playing like freaking carnival and all these songs like I, I, we're playing songs on that record that nobody had ever heard at all and even yeah. the even the hits like one man army no one knew what it was so just <laughs> just bizarre was that was that was that a uh, joint decision as a band? Just yeah, kind of... or, again, it was kind of that asshole thing. Well, no, this is great. People are going to be blown away. Nope. Yeah, I get that. I've showed up to big shows and done new material. <laughs> well, well, at least people weren't mad enough to uh, start tearing down risers and uh, burning things. It's interesting because if I I'll watch it and I'm like, man, like we killed it. Like we played really well, yeah. and the songs are really fucked up and weird parts, and there's crazy shit going on in those songs, and we really played well. So um, I think there was probably that element, like what the hell are these guys doing? But at least it's cohesive. You know, yeah. Maida might have been a little bit sour on some some notes, but whatever, salad. That's the way it goes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get it together, Rain. By the way, what happens if you ever call Rain Mike? I call him Rainburger. Rainburger. <laughs> yeah. Has anyone called him Mike to his that you've seen though? Because he changed his name from Mike, right? Yeah, yeah. He was Mike for the first few months, and then he became Rain. But um, yeah, I don't think well, because Mike Turner, I guess he felt. Two mics in the band. It kind of makes sense. Yeah. You know, and he loves his Bono, right? Rain was a that huge U2 right. guy. Yeah. So. But does he does he flip out if anyone calls him Mike that didn't know him before? I'm, sh I'm sure. Band, absolutely. Just, just never happened? Or yeah, he did. Well, I mean, I, I've never... I'm, <laughs> I'm sure he would. I mean, I don't know, flip out, like, punch you in the head, but he probably wouldn't be talking to you anymore if he said Mike. Okay. <laughs> Silent treatment. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we had an old bus driver named Jim Boatman, and uh, I think when when 
and he he did the clumsy tour like he he said to me one day he's like man you guys this is the biggest you'll ever be and you don't even know it (laughs) (laughs) and it stuck it stuck with me i was like this guy's probably right like we're never gonna be any bigger than right now so you better enjoy this for what it is but i think he you know at that point it was arenas and you know Mm -hmm. uh, Rain was in full-on lead vocal syndrome, right? So that's um, you know, and that's going to happen anyway when you're yeah. when you're massive in a country and it's you know you're kind of overwhelmed with people wanting to hear everything you have to say. Yeah. So I mean, there's got to be. I, I I guess I can feel for the situation a bit, you know. Did you feel famous, or did you feel part of a famous thing? Because like the lead singer Rain was famous, mm-hmm. but like as as always, like basic classically bassists and drummers well yeah no i think because i had the glasses i couldn't really go any i had the thick glasses that were unmistakable because you Mm -hmm. know even rivers hadn't come by yet with those glasses so i was like the guy with the glasses and music especially in canada so i really uh, and i needed the glasses to see so i couldn't really go like if i went to the eaton center i'm like i'm stopping and talking to people for Mm -hmm. whatever amount of time to, to get away so at that time, in like the between ninety seven to two thousand one or two, um, I even stopped wearing the glasses because I got sick of people talking to me all the time. You know, so yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess yeah, that fame is when you're like people kind of, you know kind of come up to you no matter where you are, and that that mm-hmm. at that point I couldn't really get away anywhere. So yeah. Wow. Because you, when you guys were new, you were opening for a lot of big bands, like Page and Plant. Um, sounds like like maybe peak Alanis Morissette. Yeah, was well, that, the, the Jagged Little Pill tour. We did her, the Canadian. We actually yeah. took a break from recording Clumsy to do that tour. Wow. So that and, was the summer of uh, 96, I think. And Naveed came out in the spring or summer of 97. Do you think that your experience of doing arena shows that early affected how you treated them when you were headlining or did you still like sort of take them for granted and well it was interesting because like that tour was like even though it was in Canada like if it was if that and because she she was made such an impact with 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 young girls mm. on that tour it was basically playing with like the Beatles in 1964 or something because like the, the whole crowd was all young girls. So wow. we were playing to people who didn't really know who we were, which was kind of great in Canada. So it kind of propelled us to um, play our best, even though we're home and everybody should know all these songs and that at that point. So yeah. uh, it, it actually helped us uh, as a band grow for sure. But then when, when you began headlining arena tours, when you're doing the clumsy tour and things like that, do you, um, did it, did you just sort of go, of course we're headlining these now, or did it seem like an extra thing because you'd been the opening band for a while? No, you, 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 at that point we're like, this is what we should be doing. And, uh, uh, we felt we deserved to be playing arenas and, uh. You know, when Maple Leaf Garden sold out in like a day, then you're like, yeah, this makes sense that we're doing this. And and then, um, you know, six years later, when you can't play the Air Canada Centre and you have to look at two nights at Massey Hall, that's when you're like, you know, 
okay, this is reality. Because <laughs> when you <laughs> when it happens and you're like, yeah, you sold it out in uh, six hours. Of course you did, right? And yeah. you start to assume that that's how it has to be. And it's so crazy because, you know, we sold over a million records in Canada, which is a diamond album. Yeah. And, and uh, we expected that to happen with happiness. And there's, you know, there was no way that was going to happen. We and, and the fact that happiness was, it's like, oh, it only sold 500,000 in Canada, five times platinum still. But that was like a failure in a way for us. So, um it, it that so, that was my that was my world in a sense that's kind of uh i, I think i'm you know i'm on team fucking let's rock at half a million records yeah, it's still yeah. great you know but uh again that, that, that's that just wasn't how things felt and it felt like we had made a a a, a, a wrong decision or something because instead of doing another big electric arena tour we did like a fucking stupid acoustic tour in small venues on happiness which is like to me it's like just admitting like you know if you can't do arenas again let's do something that won't give the fact that we can't do the arenas again (laughs) you know oh was that was that it was it a pride move yeah it's like how 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 can you control a situation to make it seem like failure isn't wasn't what happened well let's just completely make it different so it's cool (laughs) <laughs> you know like i don't know yeah not not all musicians are cut out for that kind of level of pressure um to you know it's a, it's a big leap to go from playing sold out uh clubs of like 500 to you know tens of thousands of people but i think that takes us to you know the biggest explanation of why i felt eventually that i had to go was i just felt that the perspective that Rain had on where he saw things, I just continually disagreed and to the point of like, I just don't feel I can give all of myself, you know, when I see this, this ship going this way. And, you know, that that's basically the main reason that I, I left the band was just I felt that uh, um, we just, you, you know, when you're not seeing eye to eye, uh, it, it's too it's 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 futile you know and was that was it about um like the direction of the band or the reality of the band was he still seeing you guys as stadium headliners and whereas you were like let's rock out with who came to the party or yeah i mean like my 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 life is all about reality and what's happening mm-hmm. and and uh um just kind of the understanding of of what happens and 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 even to the point where uh I've, I saw the band go from young, you know, hip alternative uh, to, to rock and, and, and then getting into the realms of classic rock, you know, so, mm-hmm. and, and I, uh, you know, when I see April Wine doing three months in the summer playing the hits so they can all take home a half a mil, I got no problem with that. That to me, yeah. it's kind of like your fruits are there. You that's life, man. You did a great job. Enjoy it. Right. But yeah. um, I didn't see things going that direction. You know? And, and, and how much of that is, um, the kind of diverging visions of a band versus, um, the pressures that are maybe being put on you by, you know, working in a music industry at that level. Like did, did, did you find it easy to tune out from that? You work in the music industry on your level based on your level not based yeah. on your perception of what that level should be. So yeah. it's about reality. 
if you have a thousand customers, you think about those thousand people. If you want half a million customers and you start trying to, you know, cater to people that aren't even there, probably not the best move. Yeah, I remember hearing a story of a, a friend of mine uh, saw Van Halen play a show in Halifax. This is 80s, like peak Van Halen kind of. And nobody came. I don't know why. He just said nobody came. There was like, it was a huge show. And there was, uh, let's say it's a stadium, 3,000 people came. Like basically empty. And uh, and I always remember, he was like, it was the best show I ever saw in my goddamn life. Because <laughs> they, they, they came they killed out. It. And they said, you know what? Everybody told us that we had to play in Halifax. They said, it's a great place to do a show. And you guys came. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to play the best goddamn show you've ever seen. And then you're going to rub it in everyone's faces for the rest of your life. And then they did. And he did. That's the he way to do it. absolutely told it like I was there and nobody else was there. Yeah. And that approach just seems so much like healthier, both for like what you're trying to put out to your fans, but also internally of just like, hey, you know, you dance with the girl that you brought. Kind of these these guys are here. You don't blame the people that showed up for the people that didn't show up, you know? No. And, that, and, and that's no different than, you know, um, the, what Joe DiMaggio used to say, you know, when he went to bat, he's like, there's gotta be a kid in here who's never seen me play. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, and that's, yeah, that's yeah. the way I've looked at it. It's like, there's gotta be someone out there likes drums and, mm. uh, you know, and, and maybe he's never seen me play. So this is what I do. And I'm going to do it. Like you've never seen me do it because that's, all I can do, no matter if I'm, you know, on stage at a big place or in somebody's basement playing with somebody, you know, it's just, it's music, you connect and, and uh, that's the payoff. If you're not connecting to your time, to your groove, to what you're playing, then you're not, you're, you're, it, it, it's, it's like uh, pretending to meditate, you know, breathing slowly and nothing happening. It's, you're not yeah. getting anything out of it. You might as well go all the way. Because that's, you know, first and foremost, you're going to connect all the way and uh, you're going to make the impact all the way as opposed to, uh, you know, what you think is all the way, which isn't. If you're thinking about laundry while you're performing, you're probably not performing. Well, where's music uh, in your life right now? Do you still like getting behind the kit just for therapy reasons when you've like uh, something's annoyed you or is it um, do you keep up the love with your kids, I guess? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I play still. I, I mean, I, uh, my kids are 15 to, to 10 now, two boys and a girl, so they're getting a little older, um, whereas before the last, you know, six, seven years, was, you know, I had to kind of be right there yeah, with mother. them. And, yeah. and, you know, personally, the way I feel, like I just feel like I needed to be there. Mm -hmm. um, whereas now uh, um, I'm starting to, you know, think about maybe playing uh again with other people you know nice. more actively and more professionally as opposed to just kind of keeping up my chops which i have been doing but um i kind of uh feel i've been doing a lot with with other things and and i just kind of miss uh playing music with people on a professional level for sure because because I, you know that's how i started i was always uh in in it for for my own gains out of playing drums and uh mm. I think in the last six years, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time doing some other stuff and it's time to kind of uh, understand that that's, that's a big part of what I've done and what I am.
Nice. Have you got a, a wish list of people that you want to throw into your craft karma? <laughs> yeah, no. But uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think just uh, to to be out playing with with somebody would be fun. Period. You know. Um, and I, f- I feel like every musician probably feels that these days. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but I mean, uh, even on the level of yeah, if you uh, when when you say playing with people that people know and doing covers like that's that's fine too. You know, it's like it's uh, it's it's no different than when I was 17 thinking about music and so I, I, I just because I have a body of work that's in the public view doesn't mean that I can't uh, uh, play holiday inns and uh, and cruise ships <laughs> even though they, they, they don't exist anymore really oh I don't recommend it no I'm, uh, I, I just think the idea of being playing music um, sh- shouldn't be devalued after the fact that you did it on a different level I think it's still exactly mm. the same no matter how it is and it gives you the same uh, benefit yeah absolutely l- l- looking back um, in, in your early years too like when this was all new and um, you know these were experiences you were having for for the first time is there anything you wish you had kind of approached differently in terms of um, I don't know your relationships or just how uh, uh, you were with the future was it or is it just a very kind of live in the moment no i mean I, the only regret i have you know is uh not believing in myself enough you know because i was young and i thought i had my head on straight but sometimes that can get twisted when you're young in in, in an industry um so yeah i think uh standing by your guns and believing your gut instincts and because uh, sometimes I would let that go. Is there is there uh, any like Canadian musician um, that you think gets a uh, gets a bum rap um, that that people sort of shit on that you're like that guy you leave him alone? I, well, I, I don't think I think that everybody who's like people ch- chirp, they kind of deserve it. That, you know what I mean? Like everybody gets picked on it's it's a small country man like in terms of the industry everybody knows everyone so Mm. um bad most people with bad raps deserve it i think you know all right name names who's got bad raps who had it coming (laughs) you know like hugh dillon everybody knows hugh dillon was an asshole in the 90s he's the first one to tell you because he was banged up and on crazy on drugs and like kind of like a a guy that should be doing B and E's, not you know singing. And, like we, uh, headstones open up for us a couple times, and like by the time we got back to our room, a, a whole rider was gone. Jesus Christ! <laughs> okay. I'm still waiting for my apology. By the way, Hugh. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like George Costanza with the neck hole. Like, <laughs> I didn't get my tenth step. Where's mine? <laughs> You, if you want to come on and defend yourself, by the way, come on the podcast. We'll love, love your both sides of this. Well, that's the thing. He'll tell you. Like, every, like I think his thing is like, first thing he says to people that hasn't seen him in 15 years is, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. But I'm just, yeah. I'm still waiting for mine. <laughs> um, For people that, because uh, like I knew you, I owned Navid and Clumsy and I wore them out. I knew every word. Uh, to those, I could play air guitar nice. all the way through as a young man. Um, but at the, by the time you released Happiness, uh, my taste had started to shift. I was listening to like um, uh, Soulfly, 
that kind of metal, like I'd, I'd gone deeper in um, and a little more punk. What part of the sort of later stages for people that maybe um, moved on like me after Clumsy, do you think people should check out from Our Lady Pieces catalog? Well, I mean, I think uh, Happiness is my favorite record. Um, I think that's that's the one where we were kind of in a position to because we weren't trying to make Clumsy Part Two, but we were also you know at that on that record like people were flying in from around the world like executives to listen to songs and it was a priority. You got Elvin Jones on that record. Yeah, right? it was a priority for the label. So we had like yeah. cater, you know catering every day and it was kind of like the biggest production. But uh yeah, I mean I I uh I was like, well if we if we got green light to do crazy shit, then I want Elvin Jones to play on this. And Elvin Jones who played with John Coltrane uh was one of the most influential drummers in history um d- didn't play on rock records did a, i played with hawkwind on an album like in the 60s but never really uh played on on any anything in that genre so i i was like well if we're getting nuts let's get nuts um you're talking about elvin jones and um uh, that reminded me of the interview that you did with um oh my god i i just blanked on his name uh, I've got it written down, and I know him because he's a personal hero, but my brain's starting to collapse. You talking about uh, Eugene Levy? Eugene Levy. I knew yes. you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that was such a fun interview to read because, like, reading any interview, um, like, it's tough sometimes to read a mega fan interview, but you just hit the right points of naming some of the right characters. And, like, what I enjoyed most about it was the enthusiasm that whoever transcribed it gave to his enthusiasm for you knowing his bits so every now and then you'd be like i think this is what this character is about and then it would just be capital yes but that's what it was like because i I remember being in i was in like thunder bay at a hotel when i did the interview with him and i literally recorded the interview and he was so psyched that i would bring up like brian johns or something he'd be like oh yeah (laughs) so i really they they captured it he was excited because I, I mean, that you, that's a deep fan interview. Like, most yeah. people probably don't know a lot of those characters. Like, Al Pex used fruit and stuff like that. Like So funny, like which I went back to after reading it. Yeah, so. I mean, it, he, uh, he like, a, a lot of those characters are completely opposite of what people are known. Like, they know Eugene for being this kind of awkward, straight guy. But those mm. characters are all just, like, weirdos or creepy or just, like you know the opposite of that so um i always thought like uh he was so good because he would create these characters that are kind of simple but like really really funny really funny yeah. stuff like i watched the used car one and he's like uh every car has a story but you don't pay for the story just the car this car is brand new but it's filled with cement uh, <laughs> exactly yeah it's so silly and then like every single other car someone had died in it at some point someone was dead and it's so silly and he's so weird and just dancing no song and dance just cars Yeah. (laughs) yeah it was like yeah why isn't this why isn't this more celebrated that was a really cool anyone listening definitely check out um it's a chart attack a chart attack uh yeah i don't know if you can fire it up 
somehow and keep it uh, linked on on your site or whatever. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, we'll, definitely. We'll, we'll put a link in the description. <laughs> Tell us about what you're doing now with uh, uh, Jonathan Torrance, Taggart and Torrance. Yeah, you guys uh, have books and radios and yeah. albums. Albums. We put an album yeah. out on Dine Alone last June. Great time to put out an album, by the way, during a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. A good time to put out a, a comedy album because people want to laugh. I think <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, but I mean, it's it's you know the idea of putting an album out is to go out and tour it and be able to kind yeah. of see everybody. So that still will happen. So we have um, that to look forward to once live music and shows come back. But yeah, let's get those vaccines rolled out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. So I mean, I, I uh, that's what's great about uh, Taggart and Torrens is is. It's not just a, a conversation podcast. We can go out and do shows and play games with people and play music. I, you know, I bring my drums. Jonathan's a, uh, a great musician, and we have fun. It's a really good time. So, um, to be able to make a record um, in different kind of genres, from country to to rock to hip hop, mm-hmm. that was that was a, a great experience. And uh, um, I look forward to going out and actually playing and doing that as well with having a, an actual vinyl album for the bods to sign and, and uh, to see for sure. But I mean, yeah. the, the book was, was good for us. The podcast is just literally a conversation uh, that we have every week. And I guess our perspectives are kind of different by him being in television and, and movies and me being in music. Uh, I guess we relate to a lot of bods and canadians out there for sure also there's there's so many different regional dialects and and uh um you know catchphrases and stuff that uh i i had to look up what the the term bumsies meant the other oh. day because <laughs> yeah weekend um, bumsies when you're having darts yeah that's a that's a pretty uh i gotta say you guys nailed the classic uh there's this place in montreal called the wheel club um kind of remind yeah, me of know. hanging out with a bunch of uh old-timey uh country musicians who may be wearing jeans that are a little bit too tight for for them at their age but <laughs> they definitely don't go to the biff tech <laughs> no <laughs> no <laughs> many nights in there i remember though some great Montreal at the biff tech yeah for sure it yeah it's uh it's still going it's there's still always going. cool people in there right like every yeah, time it's still I the same shitty popcorn yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, is there anything um, that you want our listeners to check out uh, specifically, other than obviously the uh, Taggart and Torrance podcast, uh, Canadianity, the book? Um, what's the the is the album called The Buds? The album's called Buds, yeah. So yeah, it's which on, is B A H D S. Yeah, and everything is on TaggartandTorrance.ca, and cool. uh, with the N, not and. And uh, our Twitter is just Taggart and Torrance, and our IG. We're all out there. It's easy to find cool. us. By the way, your uh, initial retweet of us when uh, uh, Jordan was going down a rain made a rabbit hole <laughs> yeah. uh, opened us up to a whole bunch of new fans. So thank you so much for that. It was a, gave us a thank nice you. bump. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, uh, I think what you guys are doing is, is great. And it's, you know, uh, oh, thanks, it man. needs to be done. More of this has to happen because uh, um, you, you don't hear everybody's so concentrated on con- creating content that's happening right now and about right now. And, you know, not, not a lot of people are recollecting the good times and, and covering stuff that people might not have heard about and uh, just reminiscing. It's a great thing. It's fucking yeah. 20 years ago, man. It's crazy. You know, 
it's classic rock now. Yeah, That's the, <laughs> it really is. Like how many how many shows on TV and radio were there like of about seventies music in the fucking nineties? It was everywhere. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and and I think there's like you know there may be a few um, super diehard Our Lady Peace fans who may think we're going a bit too mean sometimes, but it's it's all. It's in good fun, and, and please make fun of us as much. Yeah, as like you how, want to. how you're yeah. just you're just being realistic. You're talking about how life was. I mean, I I don't. Yeah, it's the '90s. Why wear a shirt? Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know why. Uh, sometimes, like I, I got, you know, I have a problem with people that connect with uh, music and lyrics over reality. You know what I mean? Mm. Sometimes people get a pass for being assholes. Yeah. And uh, just because, you know, you cry, listen to the song, like, get the fuck out of here, man. That's not life. This is, you know, reality happens and you yeah. can't take, you know, no matter how personal you feel with somebody's music, that has nothing to do with what's going on with that person in real life. It's, yeah. you know, I mean, to quote a great band, life is waiting for you. <laughs> and there's yeah. your out. Get out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was fun. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was uh, way more forthcoming than I thought we deserved for um, all the shit we talk on uh, Canadian music. But uh, listen, uh, I think this guy has also um, felt the same way that we may have about certain bands that are on this compilation. Yeah, very much so, which is great. He didn't name as many names as I hoped, but I also really respect him for not doing that. Yeah, well, I think if anything, if um, you get your Ouija board out and you ask... uh, uh, Jeremy Taggart through the ether um, what those bands might be his future ghost may tell you <laughs> well, thanks as always for listening uh, we'll be back uh, next week with another Big Shiny Tunes episode uh, make sure to check out all of Jeremy's stuff um, you can buy all that stuff on their website taggartandtorrance.ca uh, and it's not and it's and Taggart and Torrance uh, again, if you want to hear the uncut version of the interview, uh, we, we, a bunch of great stuff had to be left out because geez, it was just so much time. Um, if you want to check out the uncut one, uh, join our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash big shiny podcast. Um, all the money that we make from it will basically go to like paying someone to do the editing so that Jordan doesn't have to do all the editing unpaid. Uh, my, uh, no, that, that might be for you. My, my money's going to, uh, go to buying one of those symbols that he he has from elvin jones oh yeah <laughs> that'll be the next i'm coming for it jeremy hey jeremy how much for that uh <laughs> that priceless uh uh memento from a treasured time i'll give you 50 bucks <laughs> uh follow us on uh twitter at big shiny tweets uh Make sure to rate and review the podcast as well, please. Uh, if you rate and review it on whatever you're listening to, that helps us get out to new listeners. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we will talk to you next week. Take care. Thanks, guys.